I think that we had almost taken for granted that we would have an integrated global economy. We are almost taken for granted that everybody would understand that macro stability is the sine qua non of all progress. And we had almost taken for granted that social protection or social transfers and so on should not be the mainstay of the improvements of living standards. They should be a supplement to that. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. The onset of the pandemic in 2020 marked a turning point in the 30-year pursuit of successful global poverty reduction. According to recent World Bank estimates, the incomes of the poorest 40% of the world's population likely fell by 4% in 2020. And as a result, the number of people living in extreme poverty most likely increased by 11% the same year. That is, it increased from 648 million to 719 million. The pandemic also increased global inequality. In terms of lost income, the world's poor paid the highest price for the pandemic. Indeed, the percentage income losses of the poorest are estimated to have been double those of the richest. The rise in extreme poverty and decline of shared prosperity caused by inflation, currency depreciations and broader overlapping crises pose numerous challenges for the global development agenda. To discuss these issues, I was delighted to welcome none other than the World Bank's chief economist to my basement a few weeks ago. Indemit Gill has published extensively on policy issues facing developing countries, sovereign debt, green growth, labor markets, poverty and inequality, and managing natural resource wealth. His pioneering work includes introducing the concept of the middle income trap, to describe how developing countries stagnate after reaching a certain level of income. He also spearheaded the influential 2009 World Development Report on Economic Geography. In this conversation, Indemit and I discussed how the idea of development has changed over the years, the causes of growing global poverty, debt and stagflation, and what the World Bank is doing to address some of these huge challenges. I hope you're enjoying season four of the show, and I also hope you will enjoy this conversation I recently had with Indemit Gill. It's so great to see you, Indemit. Welcome to Oslo and welcome to my basement. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. This is my third trip to Oslo and each one gets better. Let's start by talking a bit about how you understand the concept of development. This is a show called In Pursuit of Development. And over the years, of course, the understanding of development has ebbed and flowed. How do you see this animal that is called development? A very good question. So, you know, we've been thinking about this more and more because we are suddenly in times that are quite turbulent times that are quite uncertain and times that I think a lot of people think are not good for development. So I think a really good good way to start to actually think about development is 
what was a good time for development. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that I think that the 25 years between 1990 and 2015 or so were probably the golden age of development. The massive amount of progress, a lot of low-income countries became middle-income countries, many middle-income countries became high-income countries. And, uh, you know, you had a massive reduction in poverty back in 1990. More than half of the world was poor by any sort of, you know, I guess even the most frugal of standards, like $2 a day in today's and so on. And that is now down to less than, you know, 7 8%. So there was this huge drop in poverty. And then if you sort of think about it and you say, what is it that actually led to this? this huge reduction, this great improvement in living standards and everything. And I would trace it back to sort of three things, or four perhaps. The first one was there was a mainstreaming of macroeconomic stability as an important thing. So this means like, I'm speaking of governments now, Mm -hmm. that they shouldn't spend more than what they can bring in. If they do want to borrow, they should borrow for investment. And then they should try to keep inflation low and not try to monetize any deficits and so on. So that's the first part, macro stability. The second one was governments recognize that what really leads to improvements in livelihoods and so on is the private sector, not the public sector. So let the private sector lead and have the government facilitate things rather than having the government lead, which was something that was almost mainstream for about 50 years before that, or 40 years before that. So that was the second part. So just create a good environment for private investment and and you get a lot of this. And those two things, macro stability and private investment, actually led to a big supply response in poor countries. People, there was a flow of investment into these countries and there was an increase in their, in their capacity to make goods and services. But because they were very poor countries, it wasn't always the case that they had the capacity to consume these goods and services. So there was the third ingredient that was very important, which was international trade. And so as a result, what you could do is you could actually access large markets in North America, in Western Europe and other places, Japan. And as a result, you could actually start to move up the income ladder until the time that you actually had enough money to consume yourself. That combined with one fourth thing, which was a sense that one should try to sort of, uh, these three things should have as a complement decent social protection. Not too much of it, but not too little of it. So I'm thinking about some of the debates, you know, over the years, there's always been this focus on GDP growth, right? right? You have to have economic growth, that's one aspect. Then, of course, you have to have some distribution of that growth. And so that is the other inequality debate. A third strand, which is more common among us political scientists, is political regime, democracy versus development. In recent years, Indomit, I noticed that there's much more focus on climate change, sustainable development, degrowth. It's almost like the pendulum is coming back again and one is questioning some of the main tenets of economic development. How do you see that shift? Some of these new sort of buzzwords like degrowth, are they making a a dent in mainstream economic thinking on development? Not in developing countries, which is where it really matters. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you go spend some time in India or go spend some time in China and so on, nobody's talking about degrowth there. 
people are still, I mean, if you look at China, for example, it still has a per capita income that's about a fifth that of the United States. They're not happy with that status quo. I think that Indians and Indonesians and others do care a lot about the climate. And they care a lot about pollution. They care a lot about these things. They also care about global warming and things like that. But I think they see it as one priority among two or three other priorities. Mm-hmm. And the other priority, of course, is to actually have higher incomes, to have higher living standards, to have investment in the education and health of their children. You know, So I think that it may well be that in places like Western Europe or places where you know, incomes are already very high, that one can talk about degrowth and things like that. But I don't think that is something that most developing countries, even even successful countries like China, India, Indonesia, and others, I don't think these are things that people talk about that. That means that the so-called twin goals that your organization focuses on is still relatively unchanged, right? So it's poverty reduction and prosperity, shared prosperity, because we've discussed this before, you and I, about this third pillar. Where does sustainable development, climate change concern that our kids have, how do we factor that in into this development thinking? So, you know, Dan, I guess a good analogy is thinking about poverty because you mentioned poverty, right? So what is it that led to rapid poverty reduction? Basically, two and a half things. One was broadly based growth. And the second one was investments in human capital, like education and health. And then the third one, which was a supplement to this, was targeted social safety nets. Over time, we found that once people actually got out of poverty, there was a danger of them falling back in. And so over time, what we ended up doing was we ended up saying, well, the third part should actually be bigger. It shouldn't just be a supplement. So it should be a three-pronged strategy, not a two-and-a-half-point strategy. So we sort of moved from from just the 2.5 points to three. I think in a sense, what I see is the same thing happening when it comes to climate change. So we did want to sort of, uh, you know, that we do want to end extreme poverty in all its forms. And then the second one is that we do want shared prosperity. But our goals at the World Bank were always put as ending extreme poverty and promoting shared prosperity in a sustainable manner, you know? So we always sort of had that third part. I think that was almost like, you know, almost as a supplement to these things. It's no longer that, because in a sense, we've drained uh, we've drained the planet of its resilience and we need to sort of make sure that it becomes resilient again. So in that sense, I think what you sort of hear at the World Bank and other places is an elevation of that to a goal equal to the other two. You've been at the World Bank for decades, Indermeet. You've had all kinds of positions. Do you see a change in the way the bank sees development these days? So first, I do want to say, for those of your listeners who are contemplating careers in development, I think the best places to do development are either in a developing country or at the World Bank. I, I can't think of a third place, which is good. So I yes I've been I've been at the World Bank since 1993 with a 5 year absence when I went and taught at Duke University. So has there been a change in the way that we think about development? In some in some ways things have changed. I think that we had almost taken for granted that we would have 
an integrated global economy. We are almost taken for granted that everybody would understand that macro stability is the sine qua non of all progress, you know? And we had almost taken for granted that social protection or social transfers and so on should not be the mainstay of the improvements of living standards. They should be a supplement to that. If you sort of think about the last 10 years or so, there has been a change in all three of those things. There's now a danger of the global economy being fragmented because of geopolitics. And that will be terrible for the countries that still have a ways to go. I'm talking about countries in South Asia, countries in uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa especially, but also in other parts of the world. I think the macro stability part, taking for granted of things like the importance of fiscal prudence and the importance of uh, low inflation, I mean, that has come back to bite us. I think that economies around the world are learning that lesson very, very quickly. So in the sense of, you know, are trying to make sure that one doesn't overspend and so on. And I think on the third part, I think the part about trying to make sure that it still work, that uh, the best poverty reduction program is still a job. It's not, it's not transfers from, it's not transfers from the treasury. Yeah. But those are the sort of things that we had taken as almost as foundational for economic development that started to get questioned. And I suspect some of it is coming back now. I'm thinking about the role of the World Bank as a thought leader. And some of these very influential world development reports, which among others you've also been um, heading, was it on economic geography? That's one. And so I think some of the multilateral institutions have been at the forefront in terms of launching new ideas, and the bank has always been there, depending on some of your more perhaps activistic presidents, etc. But to many observers, the bank is an important player. There is this feeling that maybe it's dominated by economists, but it has convening power. It is listened to, and sometimes it is criticized for offering advice that may lead to you know, hardship for certain groups of people. Historically, I'm thinking about some of the uh, PRSP strategies. This new situation that we find ourselves in, in Dermit. So we have had the pandemic, we have an ongoing war, and your organization's reports say that between, what, 75 and 95 million additional poor people in the world now because of these multiple crises. You mentioned earlier that global poverty was going down rapidly, thanks to mainly China and India, right. of course, not all over the world. Until 2019, we were making good progress and suddenly these crises hit us. And I'm reminded of the late Martin Ravalion. It's a shame that he died so early, just a few months ago. Martin, of course, designed this idea of measuring poverty, which, among other things, the bank became well-known for, right? So this dollar a day. And I noticed now that from $1.90 a day, now you increased it to 2.15, which is the new purchasing power parity criteria. Poverty is increasing. How robust are these measures that Martin and others like you have been working with. I'm just trying to get at this disagreement sometimes to use these measures of income and consumption measures 
Is that something that we should stick to because they are measurable, the income measure? Should we be adopting other measures to identify vulnerable groups? I think that you've posed the question very well. And we already miss Martin because he was still he was still very, very active in thinking about poverty measurement and also poverty policies. So, you know, the best way to understand that $2 or $2.15 a day measure is that it's the poverty line of the poorest countries, average of the national poverty line of the poorest countries. And in a sense, what we just said, okay, if you want to adopt the minimal criteria for who should be considered poor, consider the criteria that even poor countries consider very poor, you know? So that's what we use. And so I think that eradicating poverty below $2.15 a day should be something that the whole world should want because it's it's a very, very frugal standard. And unfortunately, as you just mentioned, that you know even if poverty hasn't increased that much, because it's very hard to measure these things year to year, there is a clear sense that that poverty reduction has come to a halt. So it's sort of leveled out at around 700 million, you know, for whatever reason. And 700 million is a lot. That's twice the population of the United States. That's greater than the population of the European Union and so on, right? So I think that part, I think, should remain. Uh, regardless of you can disagree whether or not you want multidimensional poverty right. or money metric poverty or you, want to, or you want instead to measure inequality or something like that. Regardless of that, this is a very frugal standard. Using the poverty lines of lower middle-income countries takes you up a little bit to about $3.65. And when you start to look at that, you find countries like India actually have a large amount of poverty still. If you move to countries that are upper middle-income countries like China and so on, that poverty line is even higher. It's closer to $6.5 or so. But, you know, even that measure, by the way, is fairly frugal, right? So I actually did some work. uh, We did some work for the government of China, and they wanted to sort of see what, what is a good poverty reduction strategy in a push from upper middle income to high income. So as a country becomes an advanced economy. And they were very interested in the experiences of the United States, of Japan and South Korea, especially that of the United States. And one of the things we told them after doing our work and so on was that if you look at the period during which the United States was an upper middle income economy between 1930 and 1960, the poverty rate at $21.70 a day not Mm $2, $21.70 a day, that came down from more than 70% down to less than 25% or so. If you have to sort of think about the poverty reduction champion of the world ever, I would say it's the United States between 1930 and 1960. Right, because we think of China, you know, half a billion people in 20 years. Yeah. But this is actually making people middle class. Now, if you ask me what sort of, what is it that uh, I consider uh, the biggest challenge for the World Bank right now, if you look at the number of countries in the world, they're roughly uh, 216 or so. So half are either low-income countries or high-income countries. So the low-income countries by the World Bank standards are about... 30 of them, and then high-income countries are about 70-something of them. And then you've got all the rest, 108 countries, are actually middle-income countries. And in many ways, the thing that we hear from the representatives of middle-income countries at the World Bank 
is that there's a big concern because if you, you see the growth rates, potential growth rates for these countries dropping, and they were dropping before the pandemic too. It wasn't, it was not just the pandemic or the war or things like that. They were dropping already. And this was despite the fact that many of these countries were actually improving the quality of their policies and so on. And that's going to be the topic, by the way, for the next World Development Report. What should these countries do to actually address growth and growth and development issues? Because these countries tend to be different from low-income countries in the sense that it's not just accumulation that they have to do now. It's not just more labor and more capital. It, they have to start doing things differently. But then on the other hand, they also don't have the wherewithal of richer countries who, who borrow in their own currencies and so on. So they have to fund these development efforts using the international financial architecture the way it is. This brings me to, among many things that you are well known for, we have a friend in common, Homi Karas, and the concept of the middle income trap. So from what you said about the extreme poverty measures is that, yes, they're frugal. We should actually have consensus that you can disagree with what threshold the, the poverty line should be, but let's at least do away with extreme forms of poverty, and then we can talk about high-level needs. The thing that you and Homi worked on 2005-2007, I think, is this concept of the middle income trap. So if you've done away with extreme poverty, you've achieved middle income status, all kinds of other hurdles that come that make it difficult for you as a country to transition to the next category. Tell us a bit about that and how you see that concept having evolved over the last two decades. So actually, Homi and I uh, were doing a report called the East Asian Renaissance at the time. It was our successor report to the East Asian miracle. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we were paying a lot more attention to China. And we actually had a lot of good things in that report. The only thing that people remember from it now is this <laughs> on the middle income trap. Uh, so we've been looking at this. I guess I would call it a pathology, you know, mm -hmm. that why is it that, that countries find it so difficult to get to high income? By the way, it's not the case that no countries have become high-income countries. Many have, but you can sort of trace that to really good fortune. You know, I mean, essentially, as the case of countries like Poland and Hungary and others who had the good fortune of being near the European Union, and the European Union was was a very inclusive association of nations. So geography matters. Geography matters a lot. And the other part of geography is if you just have a lot of natural resources. So the Saudi Arabias and the Kuwaits and so on, they also got to high income, but it's just because they just happened to have a whole lot of natural resources. The others that made it were very fierce. They were not fortunate, they were very fierce. So they, they postponed gratification, high savings rates, um, very difficult land reforms early on, you know, and then essentially trying to make imports expensive, gradually integrating into, these are the East Asian countries. So, so in that sense, these are the more. But if you look at the middle income countries today then, it's life is much harder for them. Because one of them is that, you know, you can't rely on the same drivers of trade, perhaps, as these middle income countries did. The second one is you actually have a lot of expectations from the middle class 
they don't want to actually postpone gratification the way some of these earlier countries could do it. And then the third thing is that they're now growing into, there is a big demand to actually get them to forego fossil fuels. Yes. So that's the third thing. And so, so they're growing, in a sense, these middle-income economies are trying to grow, but into spaces that are getting more and more constricted on the trade side, I guess on the policy space side, as well as on the climate change side. But these questions are what we are going to try to try to come up with decent answers in the next World Development Report. And we have some good ideas on how to do it. When you think about some of the challenges that natural resource-rich countries have faced over the years, not everybody has been as lucky as, say, Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. Right. I'm thinking about the Nigerias or the Angolas, right? So that, that curse, that, this, that feeling that natural resources, great, but you need good governance plus something else. And now there's so much focus on renewable energy. And it's a polarized discourse on natural gas on the African continent. And I see that one of the reasons that we're not getting to an agreement on the way forward is that the world is divided in terms of how to use natural resources, particularly fossil fuels. And uh, natural gas is one of those controversial ones, right? Where the African countries, some of them like Senegal, Mozambique, they have what, trillions of tons of natural gas, they want to use it as a transitional fuel, I have to mention, not not forever. But there's this feeling in some of the richer parts of the world that that is not the way to go. You know, So natural resource governance, it turns out to be the controversial aspect. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure how we're going to resolve that because, as you mentioned, energy security is really the crucial thing. And if you think about the African continent where I do a lot of my work, it is just energy, energy, energy. That is what they want, right? Without energy, you can't have education, you can't have economic growth. To resolve that for me is like the number one challenge, but I don't see enough traction. I mean, do you? Do you see hope in the, in the near future? So there are two parts to this question. Then. One, one part is what should countries that depend a lot on natural resources, what should they do? How should they do things and so on? And even in the even in the most sort of ambitious of scenarios, they still have time in the sense that countries will still need fossil fuels and so on. So then the question is, why did you not succeed in the past in actually translating all of this wealth exactly. under the ground into wealth in people and wealth wealth above the ground? And we actually did a really good report, which just hasn't got enough attention. And we ended up with sort of three things. The first one was, of course, we said, these countries depend on one currency. They tend to have economies that are very volatile. So the government should not add to that volatility. Mm -hmm. So ideally, it should actually offset it through fiscal stabilization policy. So the first part was stabilization, fiscal uh, stabilization. The second part was these countries tend to sort of take that money and they're trying to spread that money out into the private sector and they actually make things worse you know, they tend to favor some industries and not others and so on. And so we basically said, look, you should just try to promote an even playing field. Competition matters a lot. So first one, stabilization, second one, competition. And then the third one was many of them were trying to save this money for future generations yes. and stuff like that. And then it, it would always end very badly, you know, because these funds would get raided and so on. So we said, well, look, actually just invest in the future generations. Don't try to save for them give them education and other things now. 
So the third part was what we called education. So I think that if one just did those three things, you would end up having countries that whose experiences would look much more like Norway's than like Nigeria's, you know? Yeah, so I've had this discussion with several other guests on the show. Is the Norwegian model the right way to save for a rainy day? And a lot of people say no, you know, because uh, there's pressing need now. Yes. Because Norway wasn't poor when we got the oil. We were an okay country, right? So... So saving for the rainy day is not always the best policy. Saving, I would say saving for stabilization mm-hmm. is okay. But trying to save for future generations, very few countries have managed to set in place strong enough arrangements that are not then raided. So I would say keep it very much stabilization focused, shorter term things, you know, not long term. Not Don't try to transfer money to future generations by putting them into these wealth that that is fascinating because two things here one is has to do with the typical western criticism of the natural resource curse thesis right that it's governance it's corruption illicit flows it wasn't the natural resource per se it is how they were governed right. so we should have better legislation better controls etc and i hear that same argument in terms of natural gas it's like you didn't lift people out of poverty with oil what makes you think natural gas is going to do it. And when I pose this to entrepreneurs like Mo Ibrahim from Sudan, the British Sudanese businessman who was also on the show earlier this season, he says, if you think that we are going to again misuse these resources, then, you know, there's really no way of discussing this any further. It's like, let's just all go home. Don't give up, you know, that there's always that possibility. But I wanted to ask you about this future generation aspect because... When you and I were chatting about this in D.C. in January of this year, you had some very interesting thoughts on sustainable development because we have this um, tendency, of course, to um, in the sustainable development discourse to think that, okay, we have current needs that need to be satisfied, but also not in a way that will compromise the, the needs of future generations. And I noticed this particularly in India, and in some other parts of the world where people say, you guys, when you talk about future generations, you're talking about fifth floor issues. Mm. We're stuck in the first floor in the sense that there's pressing need, there's a contestation as to who will get how much, when, etc. So without resolving that, it is very difficult to think about future generations. But your point earlier, if I remember correctly, was slightly different. We may save now, we may undertake certain measures to maybe curb our consumption, hoping that this will help future generations, but we can't really be sure, and we may actually end up making it worse. I don't know if I've paraphrased you correctly. So there is one thing about what essentially developing countries should be expected to do in terms of which kind of, of fuels should they be using and so on. And the natural gas question comes up there. And the second one that comes up, of course, is uh, uh, that has to do with, okay, suppose you don't want them to do that. How does one finance their efforts? Because it may well be the case that there is no trade-off between climate action and growth in the long term. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a long way to the long term, you know? I think that this is what I was trying to sort of say back when we met, is that if you're asking Indians today or Indonesians today and so on to take up climate action, and you know, and by the way, they all want to, yeah. right? 
but i think i think the real thing about it is that they'll probably end up doing it in 20 30 years from now and we are asking them to bring that forward well if you're asking them to bring that forward then you have to sort of say okay how does one do that mm-hmm. you can either do that through debt or through taxes right because the private sector will follow uh, on this one it will not lead the way right now so if you if you say well we think it should be they should finance it themselves in that sense what you're then you know implicitly assuming is that future generations of indians and indonesians are going to be poorer so you should do it for them now mm. but that's the, that's very antithetical to the whole notion of economic development we want future generations to be richer when they are still quite poor today so then the question then is we should be finding ways to finance this by giving them 20 30 year money on reasonable terms to invest in these things and that's where the world is today right now you know i think that we are trying to sort of figure out whether or not it's not like indonesians and indians don't want to do this in fact we always tell them that look they should want richer countries to actually undertake climate action because it's hurting everybody not just the richer countries now in terms of the natural gas question so back back when i was chief economist for europe and central asia we did some work on green growth and things like that and you know we we sort of looked at energy issues and and uh, and natural resource management issues and we said that look a good strategy would have the first part would be energy efficiency the second one would be clean energy and then the third one would be natural resource management if i had to do a study like that today i would add a fourth thing energy security mm. and that changes the dynamic you know it changes the calculus for many of these countries and i think that countries in europe and others would sympathize because energy security is a very important thing then the next question comes up okay how do you ensure energy security and the most obvious way for a country like india or china is uh, well we have a lot of coal yeah we got but you don't want them to use that coal well in that case what should it be substituted by and natural gas is the obvious alternative now i would have a debate with somebody like homi karas who says no 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 they should not be thinking about natural gas they should be moving straight to renewables but then when i look at you know do an exercise i look at how do middle income countries get energy and i line it up based on really high carbon sources like coal and really low carbon sources like renewables hydro and stuff like that what distinguishes rich and middle income countries is not the share of energy that they get from renewables it's roughly the same okay what distinguishes them is is what i would call mid carbon fuels richer countries use a lot more natural gas which has half the carbon intensity of coal right less than half actually and poorer countries tend to use coal so then now you have now you have to sort of think about a thing you know do you want middle income countries to leapfrog the mid carbon fuels and go straight to renewables or do you want higher income countries to move from mid carbon fuels like gas into cleaner fuels like solar and so on first because these technologies are still expensive to implement that's the debate the paradox is well illustrated in india if you see some of the investments in renewable energy india is big on solar 
I suppose it's not a paradox, but India is doing a bit of everything. Yes. India is dependent on coal because there's no option, but there's also enormous investments in hydrogen. So it's this energy mix that, at least from the Indian perspective, it is almost like saying we are increasing the renewable energy component, but coal is still going to play an important role. I think as long as it plays a declining role, I think that we should not. I think that we should not be too impatient because impatience has has actually led to a lot of problems. I think impatience with the energy transition is part of the problem. I mean, here in Europe too, in the sense that you know, I guess if you have to go back to coal and to other things, that means that you are a little too impatient. But intermit the, the impatience is, I think, largely because many of my students, my children, your children, they are all activists. They want, they they are impatient. It's the Greta Thunberg saying, "There isn't that much time left, so we need to do something." And so it's this desire to go, yes. you know, into renewable, right? Not to have this transition period of several decades. It should be the desire to cut emissions. You should be impatient about cutting yeah. emissions. That's the thing. You know, because that's that's the bad thing is are these emissions. So as long as there's a plan, you think I suppose we shouldn't be preaching all the time. I'm thinking about the global not telling the others. So you know, I I actually find that we are at a very good stage where the global north is actually doing something about this. So it's not you know if you look at carbon intensities, if you look at emissions per GDP and so on, you know this this all going down. This all going down in many of these countries. But if you look more closely at the trajectories of GDP and emissions, even in middle-income countries like India and China and so on, they are diverging in a good way. You know, they're just not going down yet, but they're diverging. So we should we should see that as an encouraging thing. But then I think the second thing is, you know, the one of the things that I've learned is that when when you go and talk to citizens or to government officials and so on in countries like India as well as other countries. This this mel hypocrisy yeah. very quickly, yeah. <laughs> very quickly, and that that is the problem. I don't know if you know Vijaya Ramachandran. Uh, she's been on my show, and she's been uh, making that point very clearly that it's the hypocrisy. So it's fine if you dictate if you preach, but make sure that your house is clean first. Or if it isn't, be more sympathetic or be more empathetic, yeah. because you have to realize that energy security is the fourth pillar of of a good of a good energy transition. When I do some of the work that I do in in many African countries, looking at say what India is doing in terms of IT or health, you know, India is the pharmacy of the world. China is building infrastructure; it has infrastructure power, logistical capacity. South South cooperation is big now, which I think is a positive thing. We are not just thinking about ODA, official development assistance from the global north. There are so many. alternatives out there which i think in my view is giving a lot of policymakers in the so-called global south much more policy space right so if if china is willing to build a road that norway isn't great you know you have many alternatives but in recent months or at least following the pandemic we see a huge decline in some of these infrastructure investments from china there is less willingness to advance these big loans for the mega projects either in latin america or in africa you've been concerned with stagflation we've talked about all the other bad things that have happened post pandemic how should we go about thinking about restarting global growth 
because there are concerns about debt. And I know that you have written about this, that it isn't just China, which is often seen to be the major cause of debt, at least on the African continent. And I've also seen this, that it's the private sector. Many Western countries actually own most of this debt. It's not just China, but China has been doing quickly a lot of stuff, which has perhaps accentuated that, right? Right. But debt is always on the minds of people now. So it's almost like it's the elephant in the room. And in a recent interview, I think, in the Financial Times, you've argued that the kind of system that we have in place to to restructure debt is just not fit for purpose. So walk us through this situation where there are reduced investments, perhaps growth is slowing down, debt is a huge issue, How should we think about some of these big, big problems? So, you know, if you take a look at any country like, let's say, Zambia or Sri Lanka that declares debt default, and let's follow that country through the steps that it goes through. So the first thing that happens, of course, is that the country, people then try to take their money out of that country. You get a huge fall in the value of its currency. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is investment comes to a halt, Mm -hmm. Uh, so as a result, growth comes to a halt. So there's no new investment, no growth. And then the third thing that happens, of course, poverty goes up a lot. So And very quickly that becomes, you know, if there's another shock like high food grains, prices and so on, you end up getting political instability and so on. But these countries very quickly start to sort of see that they go backwards very, you know, so both Zambia was a lower middle income country like less than two years ago. Now it's a low income country. Sri Lanka was an upper middle income country two years ago, uh, a year ago. Now it's now it's a lower middle income country and going the wrong way. And once a country has a falling per capita income, it's 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 a very different country than a country which where incomes are growing. You know. So it's important to do this quickly. It's important to do it quickly. So then we say, okay, how does one do it quickly? So we actually have been working quite a bit on this for the last year and a half, like full tilt. So we worked on these three pillars of good debt, of good debt management. So the first one, of course, we said was debt transparency. Because as soon as a country has a problem like this, it comes under a microscope. And then if at that time, the country suddenly starts to reveal more debt Mm. or lousier debt, then you actually, even a country that would otherwise seem to have a decent, uh, like a somewhat sustainable debt, will actually go under very quickly. So the first one is just make sure it's in the interest of everybody to actually have, uh, you know, if if you have a public debt, make that debt public. You know, that's the first one. The second one is debt sustainability. And I think here the World Bank and the IMF and others share a blame here because we, I don't think that we've done a, you know, super job in in flagging which countries are, are going to have debt sustainability yeah. problems. You know, I don't think. Was that. Zambia on your radar? Well, they they were always on the radar, but not early enough, I think. You know, not early enough. So the second part is we need to sort of come up with a better assessment assessment methodology for debt sustainability and so on, because these countries also now have access to markets and so on. So in very crudely speaking, our debt sustainability assessments are look only at quantities and not at prices. So we are not looking at spreads and things like that for low-income countries. We only do that for middle-income countries. Mm-hmm. But these countries, for debt purposes, started to look like uh, you know market-access countries. 
And then the third thing is the debt restructuring. And the article that you mentioned, I mentioned about that, is that the the debt restructuring frameworks that we have in the world were for another, another uh, completely different world. When the rich countries held most of the debt. Rich countries held most of the debt when most of the debts that, that these countries had were all public. So they could be all negotiated in some room in Paris somewhere. It was called the Paris Club. Mm. You know, and they all... But that's not the case anymore. And so what we've been trying to sort of do is also try, try to feed ideas about how one, one should actually do this, where you first that you recognize that, that more of the debt of these countries is private. Second one, that more of the debt of these countries is not from the rich G7. South-South cooperation. Yeah, yeah. And then the third one, of course, is that a lot more of their debt is domestic. We yeah. encourage these countries to borrow from their own citizens yes. to their own banks. So we have to we have to come up with a measure that actually addresses all of this stuff. We've made some progress, but it's not quick enough. What are the obstacles? I mean, why did it take two years for Zambia to to reach an agreement with the IMF? I I it's it's like I said, you have to get together people uh, who are see nobody wants to be the one to agree to a big debt reduction yeah. of their own and then leaving open the possibility that somebody else will yeah. do much better. China, you know, was willing to be a part of this, which I don't think was the practice before from China. So some new things happen in terms of, of the Zambia situation. You've also been working on um, innovative social protection policies in Latin America. And I noticed that, of course, the World Bank is thinking much more about impact evaluations. Most of the RCTs done shows that one sort of intervention in social protection really seems to work, and that is cash transfers, right? So it's become this darling, and everybody's talking about it. And it's not always popular in some of the donor countries. Why should you just give cash? You know, this makes people lazy, etc. But Unconditional or conditional cash transfers have a long history. And given that you've worked in Latin America, of course, you're familiar with how that arose. I wonder if we could end our conversation by thinking about what else do you think is out there, Indermeet, that countries should be using more of in terms of different types of social insurance, um, different types of social protection mechanisms, other than cash. What is the future of global development? Where should we be really paying much more attention to? So the cash one, actually, I think what our evaluations seem to indicate is that you know there were these sort of um, uh, two or three ways to do this. One was, of course, one was to have general subsidies for things that the poor consume more of, like food. And we find that that's very difficult to actually mm -hmm. carry out. It's, then the second one, then from there we move to community-driven development. I think that all the serious evaluations that we see of these programs are very harsh on this measure. They have not worked. Okay, And then you have the cash transfers and so on. And I think that... So I believe part of the reason why we've actually done much better with cash transfers and so on is that the technology has changed a lot. The digital transfers and so on, you can target people, you can move this thing very, very quickly and so on. But again, you know, you can always overdo these things. You can, you can end up doing these things in a way like cash transfers, for example, 
is not that different from what what happened in the United States during the pandemic, as a result of which household wealth actually increased, mm. you know. And a labor force participation in the United States is one percentage point below what it was earlier. That that ends up becoming that ends up becoming a big supply constraint and so on. So you know, at the same time that you're trying to fight inflation, you are also carrying out policies in a way that reduces mm. the work effort. You know? So it's cash transfers plus something else. I guess in the case of India and so on, you know, it was you know you had conditional cash transfers, whether it was conditional on something like work, which was Emenregar, no, right, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, but but you would condition it on something, you know, condition it on something that the government can actually deliver to. So whether it's education or health or a job or whatever, you have to have the other part too. So it's not, mm-hmm. I think, you know, these instruments cannot be seen as substitutes for things that that actually improve the productive power of a people you know and i think that lesson always keeps getting forgotten in all of this stuff and so on you know and and the poorer the country the less one should be using purely social transfers and so on and the more you should be be emphasizing the other two you know broadly based growth and investments in human capital Indeed it's been such a pleasure to have you in my basement. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's, it's been an honor. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at globaldevpod and dan banick. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Banick from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment@gmail.com.